0: and I was lying on a blanket and one of the nurses dropped her in, which was near my head. The other nurse yelled at her and said, don't drop him, he's a paraplegic. And that was the first message I had that uh, of what had happened.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Bishop's Office. One of the things I'm really interested in is how the gospel blesses our lives when we're faced with challenges. So this week, I've had a conversation with John Stevens about when he became paralyzed. I I hope you enjoy hearing about his experience. Thanks for catching up with me today, John, to, I guess, speak to me about about your life. How are you doing today? I'm feeling uh, pretty good. So as I discussed with you, I guess keen to do something a little bit different than what we've done previously in these conversations, and I guess talk about the difficult time in your life with the hope of being able to learn from the experiences that you've had, and particularly in relationship to your relationship with God. Yeah, sure. So I guess the experience that I had in mind was that of losing the use of your legs. What can you tell us about your life up until that point,
0: okay. Well, let me just say that initially, you know, I was quite athletic, uh, and that leading up, you know, through my life, and that I was keen on fishing and hunting. Uh, but uh, about a year before the actual uh, surgery that uh, caused my paralysis, I had had another back operation because they, they figured that I had a, uh, a disc that was expanding and pushing against the nerve, which I have no doubt was the case but they they missed what the real problem was which was uh, further up the spine I was experiencing incredible pain I could hardly move and towards the end when I finally went in I was so much in pain that Trish would have to sit beside me and then pull me up so that I could get through the pain barrier of sitting upright.
1: All right so like if you're sitting in a chair you should need to help you to stand up or something like that?
0: Usually it was more when I was laying down and I'd drop my legs over the bed to, 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 to sit up and then stand up mm. and and getting me through that from the laying down position to the uh, sitting up position was incredibly painful. And in fact, uh, Sister Adrian Han a couple of times came in to give Trish some respite. He said to me one day, she said, I can't believe the, uh, the, the absolute pain that you're in. How
1: old are you at this stage? I was 39. 39, and mm-hmm. so you don't know really what's going on with your back. You'd had a bulging disc. The pain's increasing and is more frequent. Is that the, the idea?
0: That's right. And, and then eventually I was going to work and I went to work this particular day and I suddenly couldn't pass anything. Mm-hmm. So I, I went straight down to a neurologist on um, South Terrace without a referral mm-hmm. and said to the guy, I've got a problem, and he, he catheterized me on the spot. Mm-hmm. left the catheter in and said to me, uh, I'm, I'm going to make an appointment for you. And and it was that evening that I was taken down to Ashford Hospital and they uh, completed x-rays and that and discovered that I had a uh, what appeared to be a growth in my spinal cavity, which was at the foot of the actual solid core of the spinal cord,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, which was about halfway up your back. And so um, they then... Operated on me. Uh, I think it was. I think it was the next day. And they did the operation. I was quite fine after the operation. And then three days later, they said we're going to stand you up. And so they stood me up. And I set off a hemorrhage in the spinal cavity. The pain was unbelievable. It was like I was connected to uh, electric wires. The shocks going down my leg were unbelievably painful. Mm-hmm. And I had President Ron Sims of the state presidency come in and, and the president, President Doug Han, and they could see that I was in enormous pain and uh, gave me a blessing and left. Anyway, um, I was trying to plead to the nurses that something pretty serious had gone wrong. And they were telling me that, you know, look, you've just got to, you've got to get used to the pain. And I thought, boy, uh, you know, I, I don't think I can get used to it. And eventually, they knocked me out. Uh, basically. And, and I slept through the night. And when I woke up in the morning, I couldn't move uh, my legs. And a nurse came in about the same time as I was trying to work out what had happened. And she said, how are you this morning? I said, I, I can't move my legs. And uh, she went absolutely white as a ghost and uh, ran out of the room. And she was back with another doctor to have a look at me. And uh, I heard him say to her, he said, he's had a hemorrhage, I think. And that's when I realised that something had really gone wrong. And I was then, obviously, my surgeon turned up, one of the other specialists that I was under. He also came. Trish had arrived. And uh, they were having quite a conference at the end of the bed. I was then taken down for x-rays, and I had no idea really what had happened. And I was lying on a blanket uh, that they were carrying. There were six nurses holding the blanket up as they moved me from one x-ray machine to another. And one of the nurses dropped her in, which was near my head, and I started to slide off head first off the blanket and uh, the other nurse yelled at her uh, and said, don't drop him, he's a paraplegic. And that was the first message I had that
1: uh, <laughs> what had happened. So just to sort of summarise then, um, you'd had this pain in your back, a really enlarged blood vessel that was exactly. just causing pressure, is that right? Yeah, that's and right. That's the pressure that was giving you pain. And then yes. during your recovery post that surgery on the back, It sounds like when the nurses tried to stand you up, the point of surgery um, ruptured and you started to bleed. The the bleed created pressure and what did it do? Did it crush your spinal cord at that point, did it?
0: That's right. Yeah, that's exactly it. And then I was shifted to uh, an intensive care unit where I don't remember much of it. Obviously, they had me bombed out a fair bit. While I got over the uh, surgery, it took about a week, I think I was in there. It it really wasn't until I came out of intensive care and was finally wide awake that I started to really analyse what had happened, and uh, by this time I, it had sunk in that I definitely was a paraplegic. Once I was wide awake, I I then became depressed, obviously, and I spent a couple of days in, in being depressed. And the room I was in, which was I was on my own, it had a clock in it on the wall, and I remember looking at the clock and thinking, "We really got to get this right." And and, and then you know, <laughs> I looked up at the clock and I seen the second hand ticking away, and I thought that ain't going to go backwards. This is where I'm at, you know, something in that there. And, and uh, I've just got to go with it and make the best I can of it. And, and I just suddenly clicked out of the depression mm. and was then ready for
1: action. When you think about that period of depression, what were the thoughts going through your head? How am I going to work? Will I be able to work again? Um,
0: will I be um, a support or a, a hindrance to the family? All sorts of things like that, you know, you, you, you're thinking.
1: And so how old are your kids at this time when you're 39?
0: Uh, the oldest one was 16. And then I had one that was uh, 13. And then our daughter, she was another five years younger than that. And, and how
1: were you making a living at this stage?
0: Uh, I worked in uh, accounting, which okay. was lucky. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so you mentioned this sort of, let's call it an epiphany, at the clock and saying, hey, the the hands aren't going to go back. i better sort of snap out of it. Is that your natural personality? How did you arrive at that decision, do you think?
0: I'm normally fairly positive. You know, people will say to me, how are you? And I might be just about dead, you know, something I'll tell them I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and so uh, I guess I uh, just have a natural nature in me to uh, just be positive about things, and and then do the best you can around what whatever perhaps is um, causing the problem. You know they, they transfer you from that hospital eventually to the spinal unit, and that's a real eye opener because you're suddenly among all these people who've got broken backs and necks, and uh, you know that's another experience again. And of course, I went back into depression, you know, because I, I was stunned at what I was seeing, mm. uh, but. I, I was only I think I spent a day in depression at that particular time until I come to terms with the fact. Well, heavens mercy, these people are worse off than you. Uh, you know, I seen people with uh, you know uh, their heads supported and things like that, so they wouldn't move, and it was unbelievable, real eye
1: opener. Do you remember the first time Trish and the kids came in to see you after you were out of the ICU and and coming to terms, I guess, as a family? Of this new reality of of you as a, a paraplegia?
0: Uh, yes, uh, uh, Trish was really good. She was very positive, um, <clears throat> and uh, and my two younger children they were they were very uh, positive as well. They were fine. My eldest son he uh, he seen me once and avoided me from that point onwards. He couldn't come to terms with it.
1: So you're in the spinal unit, you're hitting the gym, trying to get strong so you can um, transfer yourself in and out of wheelchairs and beds and all of that sort of stuff. What happens next?
0: They gave me a, uh, a time. They said, look, you'll be here for six months whilst we teach you how to be independent. So what's happening is you're, you're given a wheelchair and you're learning how to use that wheelchair as your legs. You're learning how to go down steps, how to, how to jump off a gutter. All those sort of things that, that you're going to need when you're finally out, out on the street. Mm. And, and they're just making you familiar with the chair and how you can you know, really rough it up, I guess, and, mm. and, and you know, be confident in that chair.
1: Mm. So
0: uh, I, I, I spent four months in there and they said, you're ready to go. I worked pretty hard. I was determined to, mm. to get out of there.
1: Tell me about your ward at that time. What role did the members of the church play for you and your family during that that period of initial recovery?
0: Okay, that was the old Paradise Ward that we were in at the time, and they were really uh, supportive. They they took the road show up there and put the road show on. There were a lot of other people in chairs, and they were all watching it as well. What well,
1: uh, the, the ward actually performed songs and things up at the uh, the spinal unit.
0: Yeah, and I had members coming in all the time. People like Ted Phipps and Sheila Brown, Greg, and, and and the likes. who were, you know, John Sturt, and there were numerous members who were in and out all the time, just checking on me to make sure I was, I was doing okay.
1: Um, and so you you come home. Then was the house pretty well set up to accommodate you in a wheelchair? No, the... I had to have a couple of ramps put in.
0: The first day I come home, I was okay. Managed to deal with the bed and that, but uh, I think it was the next day Trish finally snapped. So I think she'd been really great up to then, been very supportive. And uh, I think the pressure and that suddenly built up. And uh, I remember I, I transferred out of the wheelchair outside on the back veranda into a, into a chair. And I was sitting there just sort of soaking up the sun. And uh, she went berserk and threw the chair down the back. And <laughs> the wheelchair. <that laughs> she really uh, absolutely had, had lost it at that particular point in time you know something and I thought Gee, how am I going to get that chair <laughs> am I going to have to <laughs> out." down what you know <laughs> anyway she eventually picked it up and brought it back and apologized to me and and that was the last time she was fine she let the I guess the what she was probably emotionally built up inside and had had hidden uh, it finally come out I think she was concerned about you know where do we go from here and that but my employer was brilliant. They were ready to go. They put things in place for me to be able to get to work and and that sort of thing. I was given a car park right there in the office where the, where all the pool cars were. I was able to drive in and just park and wheel into into work. And I was like that for 18 months. You know, I I, uh, I was in a wheelchair for 18 months before I started to learn to walk again.
1: Um, just before we move on to your recovery and learning to walk again, I think it's really admirable that both you and Trish and the family sort of, I guess, accepted your new reality without much anguish, it almost sounds like. You know, you talked about having some periods of depression and um, Trish had an episode with the uh, with the wheelchair after you got back. But why wasn't there that anguish, do you think? How did you cope with it? you know, quote, unquote, so well? I
0: um, probably did a lot of praying uh, and that. So, uh, And I also was conscious of, you know, scriptures, you know, that talk about not being challenged beyond that which we can cope with or, you know, enduring until the end and those sort of things. So I guess those sort of things were a comfort to me as well. Uh, The fact that I had my family and friends around me was really positive. You find that there's a whole heap of priorities that change. Uh, during this time because you spend a lot of time, you know, thinking about what you've been doing in the past and what what you're going to try and do in the future. So mm. what I found was that I was um, looking at my work, you know, something I dedicated myself to my work probably uh, to the point where I, it was probably my number one priority. And, mm. and because, you know, my employer and my workmates and that didn't come anywhere near as often as, uh, you know, uh, my friends and, Te- and Trish was there every day, uh, suddenly, you know they were about ninety seven on the priority list, you know, sitting in the family at number one, and you know and your friends are at number two sort of thing, so you you're suddenly reorganizing your priorities so uh, dramatically.
1: In those first few weeks, probably you know before you got to the spinal unit and and maybe during your time there, did your relationship with your heavenly Father change at all? I had a pretty good
0: relationship with my heavenly Father as it was, uh, so, I think it just uh, sort of tightened and strengthened uh, uh, that little bit more, you know, during that period of time. I had the state presidency come in to give me a blessing after I was paralysed. And uh, President Ron Sims was the one who gave me the blessing. And in that blessing, he said, I'd walk again. I never doubted it. I always believed that I would walk again. Now, at this stage, nothing was happening with my legs. They were just dead pieces of uh, bone and meat, you know, attached to me.
1: And what were your doctors telling you about the prospect of walking at this stage?
0: They said, "Just get used to it. You're you're never going to walk again." They said, "We're going to uh, fit you for a wheelchair. They measure the wheelchair, and make it fit, literally fit you." And uh, and I said, "I'm not going to need a wheelchair." <laughs> And they brought in a psychologist to have a talk to me because I think they thought I was a bit uh, I was sort of denying
1: yeah in denial um so you're at home, um, I think you said living for about eighteen months with the chair, is that right Yes, and so was it did you have to initiate um, the sort of the o t to commence trying to walk again, or is that something the doctors were supportive of at that stage? Talk to me about how that happened
0: right well what happened was uh Whilst I was out at Hampstead, uh, I noticed that I could move a toe. I'd been working with my body, you know, trying to see if I could make things work. Mm. And suddenly I got I got a big toe to move and I thought, gee, that's different. <laughs> so <laughs> I kept working with the toe, you know, something. And eventually uh, I got a few things working. They weren't working too flash and they still aren't, but... Um, things were starting to work, you know, something in that there. And I think it was about 18 months later, you know, with the help of occupational therapists and all those sort of people that I was suddenly uh, getting stronger and stronger movements, you know, something in that there. And one day, uh, one of the uh, therapists said, look, I'm going to stand you up. And I thought, you've got to be joking. You know, something in that. Anyway, they stood me up, had two, two of them either side of me and lifted me up. And, and uh, I, my entire body uh, vibrated. It was an unusual experience. I just sat there. I stood there, rather, for quite some time, vibrating, and then they sat me down again and uh, said, well, we'll do that tomorrow, and they just kept doing it for about a month. And they told me, they said, your brain will work it out. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about the vibrations. Your brain will work it out, sure enough, about a month later. They stood me up one day and nothing happened. I was quite steady, no vibrations or anything like that.
1: And could you stand... Largely unsupported after a month, or were they still at your side no, there?
0: Uh, they had a lot of work to do before that. Uh, mm. Yeah, I, I, w- I was walking between, you know, bars, parallel bars and things yep. like that. You know, the first time I um, realised that I might be able to really walk, <laughs> I was out the back, and my son, eldest son, was uh, being quite annoying in that there, and I, was, uh, I wheeled down to, the, to where he was. He was in, in, in the shed, and I threw the door, door open, and I uh, flicked myself upright into the doorway. Somehow I got myself up into the doorway, missed the step altogether. And uh, I was in the doorway and I suddenly realised <laughs> that I was upright and had a problem. And so I took a couple of pretty feeble steps and grabbed the, the uh, steel bar that goes across the roof to hold the roof section up. And, uh, and I told him what I thought of, you know, his behaviour. And, um, and that was when I, uh, well, Trish actually made a comment. She seen me do it. And, and she turned around and she said you you're going to be able to walk and i and I thought yeah I think I, I think you're right i think you're going to be- <laughs> I, I,
1: lo- I love that this like this breakthrough in your um recovery is fueled by a moment of correction I, I love that <laughs> and I guess that I guess in the focus of wanting to um, let them know what you think you sort of um forgot about almost the uh, limitations of your lips, eh? that's
0: exactly it <laughs> didn't give it a- Oh.
1: <laughs> oh, And so how, how's Trish and the family um, responding during your co- recovery at this stage? As Trish sees you out in the shed and makes this comment that um, she thinks you're going to walk again, what does that mean for you, for you and the family?
0: Well it's, well, it's a positive. You know, suddenly, I mean, even my son, he, he, he came over and gave me the biggest hug you could, you could expect. And he's the one that's having the trouble, you know, adjusting mm-hmm. to the fact that I'm, I'm paralysed and uh you know i think that the whole family suddenly realized that maybe something was going to happen and and that Trish was brilliant i mean the whole time i was in physio or uh, or the like she was she was there she watched me learn to walk again between the parallel bars uh, and that and, and i was back at work by this time by the way and and mm. uh, you know i then started to use uh, a set of crutches at work uh, that go up to the uh, up to the arm mm. And uh, and people at work were watching me uh, learn to walk. So I probably learned
1: more about walking at work than I did anywhere else because mm. I, 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 I walked everywhere. What happens next um, in terms of your recovery?
0: Uh, it's a five-year process. <laughs> uh, so I had 18 months in a wheelchair and then five years after that of continual building the strength and that to be able to uh, become independent. And eventually I... Um, I, I went to uh, two walking sticks and then one and then and I, I threw the walking sticks away and never used them after that.
1: Mm, amazing. So during this period of, I guess, physical recovery, was there also uh, an, an emotional or, or a spiritual recovery that went hand in hand with it? I think it was
0: more a spiritual because or well, what was happening was the blessing that I'd had was being fulfilled. So that was... Uh, a real spiritual experience. And I knew that that particular member of the state presidency was a pretty inspired uh, man and that he had made a numerous uh, blessing, given numerous blessings to various people and that, and, uh, and, and had miracles occur. So um, I wasn't uh, particularly surprised uh, that it was happening, but I was, I was totally aware that Heavenly Father was looking after me and that he was involved in, in what was happening.
1: Mm. were there particular times when you felt like god was close right there helping you or supporting you
0: probably uh, when you sometimes you might feel a bit frustrated or low about your progress i think that that's when you you found heavenly father was there you'd, opt, you'd often pray for some strength uh, you know something to get through this particular patch you know which you might have been having and then you'd uh, you'd sort of feel that you were you were being supported.
1: Is there anything else about that experience that you feel to share with us at, at this time? I think the biggest lesson
0: that I learnt was that um, you you just trust in the Lord on whatever challenge you face, and you then turn around and you uh, you go with uh, what you you know what you can go with, and uh, and trust that the Lord will be with you and that there. But sometimes it's not meant to be. Sometimes the challenge is meant to be that level for you, and you're going to uh, ha- have that problem. So for example, you know, someone might break their neck and be a quad, and that's uh, that's how it'll be for them. Mm. Uh, and that you know, so uh, mm. there's others who might break their neck and be pretty pretty okay. Uh, and I ran into a few few like that when I was out, out at Hampstead. Uh, I I think that that's it's all about what you make of it and what, you know, and if you've got a positive attitude towards life, you know, you'll be okay.
1: One of the things that strikes me um, as you sort of describe your attitude um, to the whole thing is um, you had a very, it sounds like clear image of who God is and the purpose, or what purpose trials play in our lives. What can you tell us about those themes
0: well, I know that God's our creator and I think that they can't go much further than that, you know, sort of thing. And I know that uh, the saviour cares for us so much that, he's, that he uh, sacrificed his own life. And I'm well aware that the Holy Ghost is there to back us up and that and, uh, and, and in, inspire us and to uh, give revelation. And I'm pretty uh, confident that, well, I know it was the revelations that I, that I received from the Holy Ghost that kept me going. I knew, I knew that I would walk again, for example, and uh, Trish knew that I would walk again as well. You know, something, she told me that later. So I was conscious of all these, these little prompts and that that I was receiving. You then have the scriptures, you know, that's, that support some of those things, you know, where you're, you're told, you know, look, you won't, the challenge is not going to be anything more than you can cope with, you know. I remember when I was called as bishop, you know, this thing, I, I, I had a sister come in to me and she was talking to me. And, and you've got to remember, it was, it's not much after I uh, learned to walk mm. or began to learn to walk again that I'm, I'm suddenly called as a bishop. And so I'm sitting there listening to this lady's problem or the sister's problem. And I remember looking at her and thinking, that's not a problem. This is a problem. This is a problem. (laughs) And a bit like, uh, like um, Paul Hogan, you know, with the
1: knife. (laughs) You call that a knife?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And and, and I suddenly uh, had to stop and say, hang on a minute. For this sister, this is it. This is as much as she can handle. Yeah. And I had to make an adjustment in my thinking mm. uh, for the sake of that sister. Mm. Uh, so I, I have no doubt that we're, we're blessed with varying degrees of ability to cope with whatever's thrown at us. I think that that was one of the big things that I learned was that we, we won't be challenged beyond that which we can cope with.
1: Maybe we can fast forward a bit and just on the same theme of trials. A couple of years ago, you were diagnosed with cancer. Um, What type of cancer is it? Bladder cancer. Bladder cancer. Talk to me a little bit about that experience of learning of that diagnosis.
0: Right. Well, I went in because I was passing blood and uh, I went in for the surgeon to have a look and see what was there. And he came in and he said to me after he'd done it, he said, uh, I'm afraid you've got cancer. So they told me about it and I... I didn't sort of react at all. I just looked at him and thought, "Oh, it's another challenge." And uh, but Trish was upset. Obviously, she thought, gee, what happens if I lose you?" You know, she actually said that to me. In that, you know, and I said, "Well, I'm not going anywhere just yet." But we we turned around and discussed a few things about what sort of adjustments she might have to make if something, you know, did go wrong. And I remember uh, finally getting the message that the cancer was a very aggressive cancer. And I was being treated uh, with this drug that was being inserted into the bladder, something there to to tackle the cancer or keep the cancer controlled. And he said, we can control the cancer. He said, we've been able to do it in the past. So I trusted that. And then one day I started to experience pain. And I said to Trish, can I have one of your panadine fort? Uh, And she said, what's the problem? I said, well, I can't get rid of this pain, you know, something in that there. Anyway, I was to go into hospital to have the check. I was going every three months and they have a look and see what was going on. And so I went in and he had a look. He came out and he said, how do you feel? And I said, frankly, I said, I feel like I've got a hand grenade in my hand. I said, I pulled a pin out and dropped it somewhere. I said, and I'm holding the handle and so the clothes so the thing won't explode. <laughs> I mm-hmm. said, And I'm not feeling real good about it, you know. And he said, we'll take your bladder. Yeah. And I said, okay, when we do that, and he said, well, I'll send you home after you've had these checks. He said, and we'll bring you in on the Wednesday, which was about uh, five, five days later. And he said, we'll remove it, which they did. Uh, and they took the bladder. They took 17, I think, lymph nodes. And they also um, took my um, prostate.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that's gone as well. And, um, and then I started the uh, chemotherapy after I came out. Mm-hmm. When I took the... Uh, Bladder out. I uh, I lost sixteen kilos. I uh, I couldn't eat for a week. It was really a really a terrible uh, experience. I actually said to my daughter, I, I looked at her
1: and said to her, I said, I'm not going to make it. So I don't think i can pull through this time. From what you and Trish have told me, it was a pretty dark period there in the hospital just recently, right? Um, and yes. it sounds like just leading up to um, you saying to your daughter that you didn't think that you were going to make it. Um, how did you get through? what sounds like what we call the valley of death almost right
0: yes believe it or not i i've been accepting of the cancer and whatever will be mm-hmm. and so when i was in there and i said to her that i, I don't think i'm going to make it uh i actually was accepting if that was it that was that's if that's when the lord wanted to take me well then that's when the lord wanted to take me so i was actually quite uh, quite calm about quite quite relaxed i just said to her that i don't don't think I'm going to make it this time, you know, something and like that. Uh, she, uh, she sat with me for quite some time and, uh, you know, held my hand and that, you know, and talked to me, uh, give me some encouragement sort of thing. And I think she was pretty concerned because she told Trish when she, once uh, she left the hospital, she said, I think Dad's gone this time. But personally, I, I was quite okay. I was quite calm.
1: Well, John, thank you for taking the time to share your experiences with us for your example of faith. And um, we wish you um, continued good health and, and recovery as you continue what may be you know, more treatment as they try to um, knock this whole cancer thing on the head. But um, yeah, just really appreciate um, the time that you've taken to give us a bit of insight into, into your experiences. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that experience from John. Both Trish and John are just such wonderful examples of facing life's challenges with both faith and optimism. That's all I have for you today until I speak to you again here on the Bishop's Office.